if nobody knew what the Corn Growers Association is all about, they do now due to that game out there. It was absolutely perfect. I mean, I'm learning everything new about corn myself. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we're making sure the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them, with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. The Field of Dreams is an iconic movie for baseball fans and corn growers alike. And that image of an idyllic baseball diamond set amongst the Iowa corn stalks has endured now for decades. But this summer, the NCGA had the opportunity to be a part of Major League Baseball's plan to bring baseball back to that field in Dyersville. And on this episode, we'll relive that day with Ron Kittle, former White Sox outfielder and 1983 Rookie of the Year, as well as NCGA President John Linder. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and your favorite app. Also, make sure you follow the NCGA on Twitter at National Corn and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at ncga.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. And John, the NCGA had a chance to be a part of something truly special recently. On Thursday, August 12th in Dyersville, Iowa, the Chicago White Sox played the New York Yankees in the middle of a beautiful field of nine-foot-tall corn next to the historic Field of Dreams movie site. You know, Dusty, we've done and seen some really cool things at NCGA, but I don't know anything that compares to the spectacle that unfolded that night in that very, very special field of corn. And so in this episode of Wherever John May Roam, we're going to relive that experience with two of the very few that got to watch it live from the stands in Dyersville. First is NCGA president, John Linder, who watched it all go down from a few rows right behind home plate. So welcome, John. Really glad to be here. And boy, what an awesome experience, John. Absolutely. And our very special guest today is former White Sox outfielder Ron Kittle, who is there with his former team. Ron was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1983 with the White Sox, who played in that league through 1991. Ron, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about of a fantasy and a little bit of heaven out there in Dyersville. That's right. It's not heaven, it's Iowa. So, Ron, you're the first major league ball player we've had on this program. I got to ask that question every kid asks. What's it like playing professional baseball? I've had to answer it a million times, and it never changes. It's an opportunity to go out there and compete at the highest level, compete with camaraderie, with friends that you get to know all through the minor league days. And the minor league days, is this where you start, John, is you make no money. I was making five or $600 a month trying to make an apartment, a car payment. In 1982, when I got to the big leagues, I made $32,000. was really funny. Four years prior to that of graduation of high school, I was an iron worker and I made $72,000. So I took a cut and pay to get to the big leagues. <laughs> but it's a dream. You watch TV, an action movie. You want to ride a race car. You see a motocross. You want to ride a motorcycle. It's just that I grew up playing baseball. When the street lights went on, I went home and I was done for the day. It just became a passion to go out there to compete, play catch, and have a catch with your dad or whatever it is. Maybe a little play on the movie words, but it was a great opportunity. So what were a few of your proudest moments as a ball player? 
I think having my family be able to watch me, my role as a baseball player came up a little differently. I had basketball scholarships, football scholarships, none for baseball. And I hit extremely well for baseball. But when you play in the Midwest, Gary, Indiana, you don't play a lot of games, but I also wore glasses. So the old time scouts just turned away from anybody who had glasses. They said, you'll never make it to the big leagues. Well, one day I just went to a tryout camp for the Los Angeles Dodgers and I did very well. And they signed me to a contract. I was almost getting ready to go to college. And I said, you know what? I got to show this scout that I can play in the major leagues. And that became my mission to go out there to play with glasses. And if you're a baseball fan of any sort, there's not many players who ever played with glasses. I could not wear contacts. So that means even less people wore glasses, probably if I would say maybe 10 in the whole major leagues, but I had to prove somebody wrong. And, uh, you know, I got my chance to play and uh, I think I did all right with it. You know, Ron, talking to somebody like you who came into the league from sort of a non-traditional background, you talk about how you worked as an iron worker prior to getting into the world of baseball. How do you think that changed your approach to the game and your approach to training and your desire to play the game? I had a tough dad. I mean, literally, if I would have died, he probably would have yelled at me and said, get up and walk it off or something (laughs) like that. But when I tried out for the Los Angeles Dodgers, I started in 1977. I go to Vero Beach and I had a great spring training. I go down to Clinton, Iowa. There's another corn belt for you right there. And my first at bat, I hit a double. Mike Sosha hits a single. I score and a catcher catches a ball improperly and jams me and breaks my neck and paralyzes me at home plate. That's my first game, first at bat in all professional baseball. So it took me three or four months before I started to have any movement at all. And I played a little bit that year and I did all right. But at the end of the season, my ears were killing me. My teeth were bleeding. I mean, everything hurt on me, but my neck. So I get checked out and the guy goes, you got three crushed vertebrae and a cracked spinal cord. Are you stupid? And I said, obviously I was. When you're 18, you just want to play sports or get a chance. And I had the screws in the halo in my head and I was done. Doctor told me you'll never play again. And inside of me, I was angry, but I wanted to go prove this guy wrong again for wearing glasses. And I just worked out to be the best shape I possibly could. And if I told you the whole story, I don't know how long this show is going to be, but if you want to hear the story, because you can't make this up. I mean, honestly, a scriptwriter could make it up. So I go back iron working. I weighed 185 after I healed up a little bit. And I played for a semi-pro team one game, one at bat. So I drive over and I'm like as strong as you possibly can get, long hair, beard, suntan, muscles from iron working. And the first pitch the guy threw me at this semi-pro league was right at my head. And I haven't swung a bat in over a year. And I kind of whipped my head back, almost like a cartoon character, you know, when your head falls off. So the next pitch he threw me, I was in Midlothian, Illinois, and I hit a ball over the light tower, over the fence, on the highway. It's never been done before. Fortunately, the guys driving down the street, it hit in front of their car, and the two people were Bill Veck and Billy Pierce from the Chicago White Sox, the owner. And they went to the next exit, and they said, who hit the ball on the highway? And I'm hiding, think I broke a windshield. So they gave me another opportunity. It was on a Tuesday. Friday, I tried out for the White Sox out of a second trial camp, and I got a chance to prove I was pretty good, and that's how it happens. I mean, that's a story in itself. Not only did the stars align, the planets aligned on that one. One hundredth of a second in any direction, this story doesn't happen. It really doesn't. Mm -hmm. So Bill Veck owned the Chicago White Sox at the time. He's also the first one that planted the ivy at Wrigley Field, so there's a little piece of trivia for you. And Billy Pierce was a White Sox pitching great. 
of the 50s and the 60s. Like I said, something was lined up. Somebody was looking after me and I got a chance to play in the major leagues for 10 years. It was pretty good. So in other words, Ron, if you want to do something, you get somebody to tell you that you can't do it. Really? You know, my whole life has been like that. I like that challenge. I tell my kids, I will never let anybody outwork me. I'd rather die of a heart attack than let somebody outwork me. And I got to prove people wrong that I can do it. You know, I'm 63 years old. I work out. I can't say I work out fitness wise, but I work in my property every single day. I mean, I hauled two and a half ton of boulders the other day, like mushball sized ones, cantaloupe into the back. I dug them out of the ditch and I did it all by hand on the hottest day of the year. I just like working. I don't consider it work. I consider it a workout. I just have fun with it. You know, John Linder, president of the National Corn Growers Association, I listen to a story like Ron's and I think to myself, boy, that work ethic sounds like just about every grower that I've ever met in my life. You've spent a career working the fields out in Ohio there, John. Does hearing a story like that, does that resonate with you? Oh, it really does. I can't say that I go move rocks around the property so much anymore because I grew up as a kid picking rocks out of fields. You know, half the fun of that was the dirt clod fights I had with my brother, if you can imagine. They stung too. We got pretty good at pitching those. I never did play baseball, but boy, it's so enjoyable to watch really good talent play a great game like that happened at Field of Dreams. But, you know, you're right. So many times folks say, you know, you can't do that. And we get entrenched in the knowledge that we've had as a history and think, uh, we just need to continue doing things we always did. You don't get anywhere, do you, Ron? You need to think for yourself and you really need to try new things and really go for it. So I can so relate to the stories he's telling of his history. It's amazing. Well, you're lucky I'm not a a neighbor of yours at a farm because that's how I got all these doggone rocks. Uh, (laughs) They would till up the field and I would literally take my wheelbarrow out there and fill it up probably 30, 40 times in the back of my property. And I'm building a fire pit with them. And the farmer comes over and he gives me a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I never (laughs) even met the guy. He goes, I've dented up many a blade on those things over there, tilling those fields up. <laughs> well, Ron, I'll do a little better. I'll get you side by side with a tilt bed. So yeah. you just come on out. Oh, I like that. I like I said, it's <laughs> exercise for me. But, you know, I got a great appreciation for farmers. My uncle was a farmer in Minnesota. He had corn every year. So I got my little taste of what corn would. Like right now, these county fairs, when I'm riding my motorcycle, I'll pull into a town that has a fair and they got hot buttered corn where they dip it in there and his grease is dripping all over your face. And I salt it up like crazy. And uh, yeah, I could probably go for about four or five years of that right now. We'd all have to wash our beards. I think there's four of us that would have a little issue of uh, (laughs) napkin won't quite cut up with that sweet corn. Yeah. Hot soap and water. That's the only way to go. You know, Ron Kittle, you talk about working on your property and riding your motorcycle. And since your retirement from baseball, I understand you've kept busy with a lot of cool hobbies and side hustles, including I understand you do a lot of woodworking and a little bit of metalworking. How'd you get into that and what do you love about it? Well, my graduation present was a piece of paper that says you're an apprentice iron worker for American Bridge. Everybody else had a party thrown for them, uh, a car. <laughs> I went to work the next morning at 4.30 in the morning with my dad, and that's where I made all my money. But he taught me great work ethic. And I went to work because he was getting older and he was not healthy. And I went out there. I worked twice as hard as everybody else out there to protect my dad. And he knew it. So I dabble a lot. I learned how to weld. When I travel around the country and I speak for Fortune 500 companies, I said, there's five things I can't do. Sing, dance, give birth, do my taxes, and fifth grade math. You know, they change everything now, but there's nothing I can't make physically. I know nothing about automobiles and cars or nothing like that. I'll take that to my buddies who are mechanics. But if I see something, I can make it and I can make it better. 
So this table that I'm on right now, the legs are three inch I-beams, which is an iron worker underneath it. The top is two and a quarter inch. It's 80 by 80 ash, which are bats. And the tabletop weighs 548 pounds. So I just like nice things. I like them built well. And uh, I've always been like that. I always tell everybody it's that CDO. It's like OCD, but in the right order, CDO, you get it? And it's my ADHD all in one. So I sleep three hours a night. I constantly work. I just love it. I mean, if I had nothing to do, I go crazy. You know, Ron, it sounds like there's a lot of comparison between the industries you cut your teeth on and farming. You know, hard work is so much part of what you did. I got to tell you, when I drive up to Chicago, I drive right by that plant and I marvel at the engineering that goes into that bridge work. It's pretty phenomenal. As a farmer, I really like to look at things that are manufactured like you. So you're going to have to show me your table sometime. It's not bragging. I just keep busy because I've been restless my whole life like that. I mean, my parents used to say I'd walk in the house when the streetlights would go on and I would just walk in from playing all day or doing something. I would just do a nest plunge on my face. And my older brother would drag my feet into the room and I'd have like a little scab on my nose for him <laughs> dragging me. I was just unconscious. But yeah. it's just like that. You know, you're bringing back. We drove out to Dyersville from Chicago three and a half hour drive from my house. And you're seeing what's going to be a spectacular event. But what's really cool, John, is MLB didn't let anybody go inside and see it before the facilities. No cameras were allowed, nothing until the day of the game. And I got a little backstory on that. I was part of the original group that went in there to purchase this. I drove for, I think, five months straight, two times a week. I had to go in there and present our case to prove why we deserve to be able to field in there from the Lansing family. So we met with the drainage board, the town commissioner. I was in there and my attorneys go, here's things that you can't say. And I said, well, you just got the wrong guy to come do your work for you. <laughs> and I open it up right there. And one of the neighbors who's still on the site is still fighting to not have the fields there. If you were there, you've seen the big house up there with all the barns. They bought the property because of the movie site. That's the only reason they bought it. I didn't even heard of Dyersville before. So that was my first thing. I said, listen here. I said, I bet you my entire life and my dog, and I'll never risk my dog, that you bought your property because you wanted to be associated with the movie site. And uh, we wound up getting it from the Lansing family and it, it was 173 acres out there. So I've been there. I played catch on that little movie site. I took motorcycle groups out there. I do batting practice one day for five hours. So John, it could be either one of you or Dusty could have been out there with your dad and your grandkids. I threw batting practice the entire day for five <laughs> hours straight to every person went up there because no matter how bad you are, I can hit your bat. And it's not to hit a home run. It's just the ambiance of what's going on out there. And I think it's a spectacular place. Hopefully you all saw the movie, right? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it still gives me chills and I've seen it probably 20 times. And when the players came out of the outfield, John, you can relate to this. It gave me the chills. It no. was like movie theatrical. It was just perfect. Like uh, Kevin Costner said, it was perfect. As did I. I get those same chills. And I think 8,000 other folks, you know, it's great to be there to experience that with 8,000 of your closest friends. And I say that truthfully because everybody wanted that experience. You know what an experience. Everybody I have talked to about that game, whether they saw it in person or saw it on TV, they all talk about that moment when the players came out from the corn, just how it was an awe-inspiring moment. And it was truly, I think of all of the moments of that game, and there were a lot of really great moments, 
for me, that was the coolest part of the whole thing was to see that. And like you say, after you've watched the movie a dozen times, that was a pretty neat moment. It was better seeing it on TV because it was 105 degree humidity out there. <laughs> and all, all the women who had eyeliner on, it looked like they had war paint because it was dripping down their faces. Mm -hmm. But uh, I tell you what, either way, it was pretty spectacular. John Doggett, as the NCGA CEO, Ron had talked about sort of the formation and the early planning phases of getting this thing off the ground. But you were in the room when the corn growers decided to get involved with this project as well. Can you give us a little bit more of a background about how the NCGA got involved with the MLB Field of Dreams game? Absolutely. You know, Neil Kasky, our vice president of communications, called me one day and said, let me ask you, have you ever seen the movie Field of Dreams? I said, yeah, who hasn't seen the movie Field of Dreams? He said, well, guess what? They're going to do it again. And we have an opportunity to be involved in that. What do you think? And I said, oh, you don't need to ask me what I think. We're going to do this. And we took it to our officers and then we took it to our board and then we took it to our states. and. Boy, there's few things other than $2 bump and corn that got people as excited about this. So it was just a no-brainer. It was how do we get it done? What's it going to cost? And how are we going to move forward? And then, of course, the pandemic hit and the game gets put off for a year. All through that year, everybody said, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And like I said, I've not seen anything that got folks as excited in our organization as this baseball game. You know, Ron, you are in your current role, essentially a team ambassador for the Chicago White Sox, but that gives you the opportunity to, of course, be a spokesperson for the organization, but also to get to know a lot of the players that are in the locker room right now. What was the reaction among a lot of these guys who are, you know, 24, 25, 26 years old, maybe weren't even alive when the Field of Dreams movie came out? You know... This past year, I'm not allowed to go in the locker room at all, not even in what we call the surrounding area, the concourse. You can't even go down there because it's all MLB tier one approved. But I heard through the grapevine, a lot of the people never saw the movie. They're into different kind of things nowadays, social media. They all saw the movie finally, and every one of them was super pumped to be there. And I could pretty much say out of the 30 some odd teams at Major League Baseball, Given every single person, but maybe 10 would have been extremely proud to be in the first game out there. I explained to Jerry Reinsdorf, Yankees, White Sox, the way they did it was perfect. It was a big top circus. I think the following years, supposedly with the Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds coming in there, no offense to the Reds there, John, from Ohio, <laughs> but it's going to be a little bit of a upscale carnival. Because the movie's not about the Reds or the Cubs or anything else, like but the Cubs are nationally known for all this media throughout the world. I mean, I've been to Japan and the Cubs are on TV. I've been to Australia, the Cubs are on TV. I mean, they're just worldwide known out there. But the effect of it, I mean, these players went in early because I was out there early also. And I still had to spend $475 for my seat. Now, did you get a free seat? I don't know. Did you? I'd really like to not discuss what that seat cost. It was not a free seat. Okay. Now my son, he's out in California. He goes, dad, I got some clients. He's a golf teacher. He goes, they'll give you 3000 a seat. And I bought four seats. I go, if they get it to 5,000, they can come out there and I'll buy them the first batch of corn. But I didn't sell my seat. My wife wanted to go see it. And she was just overwhelmed with the whole thing. I want you to know that the morning of the game at Reagan National Airport, in Washington, D.C., early that morning, there was a man who heard that his flight to Iowa was canceled. 
And it was a sad and tragic moment as he lay on the floor sobbing uncontrollably. But we forgive you. (laughs) I tell you what, I'm not going to forgive American Airlines for canceling not one, but two flights on me that day. So anyway, I hope you all enjoyed the game in person. But Dusty and I watched it on television. I started my travels to get there that day at four o'clock in the morning in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm getting texts from John Doggett. This is a problem. You know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I hope it doesn't transfer. You own that problem. I'll just keep traveling. And fortunately, I made it there in good shape. And I really felt bad for John. But that's such an opportunity, you know, of the opportunities, got to meet the groundskeeper. And here's a story about the wind really coming in and wreaking havoc on the site and staking up a thousand corn plants. And now to hear you, Ron, share about the background work in procuring the site for this. You know, 90 million acres of corn raised in the U.S. This is a perfect field for this game. And so thank you for securing that site so this could take place. So meaningful to every corn farmer in the nation. They really, really appreciate the fact that we could do a cornfield ball game again that was as meaningful as a movie set. You know, and we all have our favorite moments of the movie, but we all now have really favorite moments, whether watched on TV or in person of that game. And, you know, you talked about your life being choreographed. How can you choreograph a game like that, Ron? Tell us a little bit about what you saw and you felt. I was more impressed finding out that they hired this guy and paid him a lot of money to make sure they put sticks on those cords when the winds knocked them down. (laughs) I guarantee you they were out there waxing the leaves. I mean, it was absolutely perfect. So they cut the corn maze out. Remember that? You know, the corn Mm -hmm. maze. Did you walk in it? I don't know if you did or not. That was the National Corn Growers Corn Maze. Yes. Well, I'm going to tell you one thing. I couldn't get out of the doggone thing. and It was so hot. (laughs) Sweat was dripping down my face like it was crazy. So I bought the authentic White Sox jersey and I have them over here to my right. I bought four with my number 42 on it. I played with number 42. It's retired in every ballpark in the country due to Jackie Robinson's respect. And it came a size 38 and I were a 50. (laughs) So it literally looked like I was some (laughs) overweight man. So I called the company who made these and she goes, oh my gosh. So I sent one back and she goes, yeah, it was mismarked. (laughs) But so I will auction these off. So, but I bought the corn grower. It was an Iowa state logo with corn growing on it. So I'm going to auction off these four jerseys here with a patch sewed onto it. And if they want an autograph, I'll sign it. If not, but I think they cost me like $320 a jersey for the authentic ones, mm-hmm. you know, the same ones that the players were. So I couldn't get out of that corn maze. I was getting frustrated. I was dying of thirst because you know, there's humidity inside the corn mazes. I'm not too big, but I walk right through the doggone thing sideways just to go. I started heading to the lights. Like I was a hunter hunting a bear. I was going through the wickets and I got out and one of the kids that was working there as a security, one of my real good friend's son who got asked to be a security guard there. And he was screaming my name and taking pictures. And uh, that made it almost more fun because I got to know him. Ron, I will neither confirm nor deny. I may have stepped in and said, I'm not going to do this today and step back out. <laughs> that was a wise choice. <laughs> no, I just thought it took postponing the game to make this event even better. I think if they would have did it last year at this time, it wouldn't have been as climatic. It wouldn't have been as good because the White Sox team kind of stunk last year, but they're playing pretty good baseball. The Yankees, they were in a hot streak out there. I usually leave early when I work the ballparks just to beat traffic out of Chicago. I left early before Timmy Anderson hit the home run, but I was in center field. I don't need to be in a seat watching it from home plate. I was closer to the home run than the people in the stands. 
So the people that I was guest with, other White Sox, it took them three and a half hours to get home after the game. It took me 45 minutes to get back to Galena so I could stay in my hotel and have a cigar. Let's talk about that for a second, Ron, because you could not have scripted a better baseball game. Fellas were just bombing it over the wall into the corn all day. The Sox stake out an early lead, but then the Yankees rally to go up 8-7 in the top of the ninth, only to have it snatched away by Tim Anderson in the bottom of the ninth. You've been around the league. You've played for 10 years. You've been to a lot of baseball games. Where does that moment, the stock off home, Home run, they call it. Where does that fall in your all-time pantheon of great baseball moments? Top 50, top 20, top 10? Where are we at? I'm saying it's probably in the top 20, and it's probably worldwide more famous now due to social media. Because when I played in the 80s, there was only one or two sports programs. This week in baseball, you would catch it. Now you got Instagram, you got Twitter, you got every TikTok, you you name it. I'm still trying to figure out when Timmy Anderson was doing this. I still haven't figured out what he did when he <laughs> was running around the base a lot. I, I don't know, flipping boogers off his fingers or something. I, I couldn't tell you, but I think it was said it's finished. You know, he was trying to say it's done. I'm my guess, but Timmy's a good kid. He's a real good player. When he signed to the White Sox, his parents walked up to me and they're White Sox fans. And he goes, Mr. Kittle, you got my permission to pound my son, Timmy, in the head if he does something stupid. <laughs> well, when you're 6'4", 250 pounds, you can beat a lot of people up out there. But my wife recorded every single interview streaming from all the networks, the game officially. But what made it so spectacular is the announcers didn't get sidetracked, talk about other stupid stuff. They stayed focused on the movie scenes, on the property site, uh, the people in attendance. So the White Sox got 1,600 tickets and the Yankees got 1,600 tickets. That was the deal. We had to buy them. I'd buy them from the White Sox. The other ones went into a lottery where other people got it or influential people. A local guy who's a CEO of a company, White Sox auctioned off four of them for charity four seats, four jerseys, and a hotel room in Galena, and he spent 60 grand on it. What's the line from the movie, the Field of Dreams movie, when the older fella's sitting there and he's talking about how it's money they have, it's peace that they lack. They'll pay anything to come to the Field of Dreams. I think that's what you see right there. Yeah, James Earl Jones. I, I mean, if nobody knew what the Corn Growers Association is all about, they do now due to that game out there. It was absolutely perfect. I mean, I'm learning everything new about corn myself. I was told because my brother-in-law worked for DeKalb Corn. Is it true that one silk goes to every kernel? That's what I heard. A hundred percent right. There's only typically one corn ear on every stock. I took a picture the other day of some with two and one had three and one was a little tiny one. So that might've been <laughs> a hybrid. I've never seen that. I want to draw a visual for you. You know, you said you left early as you many times do, caught the home run before you left the field. It was amazing. I never thought anybody left when the White Sox players were out on the field, bringing their family out, taking photos and videos of the feeling they had capturing that cornfield in the background for the ballpark. It was just electrifying just to watch those folks get to appreciate the opportunity to win such a monumental game. And for me to frame it with corn was just over the top, just a wonderful experience. So I'll thank you again for your part in that. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about the price of the tickets. It was pretty cheap compared to the value that we got out of that game to have the announcers talk to one another about, you know, that corn, that's not sweet corn out there. That most of the corn grown in the United States is field corn. John Linder and I can say that all day long and nobody will listen. 
Joe Buck says it, it's a whole different story. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, we have to meet people where they're at. We can't expect them to meet us where we're at. This game just gave us that ability to do that. That was just so, so neat. And I got to tell you, I have friends and family who have nothing to do with the corn industry, who have called me, who have texted me, who have emailed me and said, the game was wonderful. And oh, by the way, I didn't know that this was field corn, or I didn't know this, or I didn't know that. What great opportunities we've had with this program. It just boggles my mind. John Linder, I wanted to ask you too about the educational impact of the thing. And as a grower yourself, what did it mean to you to see the message of the corn growers being broadcast out to a national audience like that during this game? You know, Dusty, one of the uh, reminders as you get caught up in the game, you know, I tweeted out, uh, I took a an excellent photo of someone hitting one of the home runs and to be able to say in that tweet that words cannot describe the feeling I feel when a home run hits cornfield. In the seventh inning, they were carrying out the National Corn Growers banner and putting behind home plate. And to know that that's going to be on national TV was just a reminder that this was such an opportunity to engage folks at a level they haven't had an opportunity to engage with us. So the MLB folks, after the game, I mentioned sitting in the stands and nobody's really leaving. And we finally said, you know, they they do have a place where we can go connect with some of the folks from MLB. So we left and did that. And the questions about corn, so basic. We overthink it, right? How'd you get the rows so straight? Well, they're planted with a planter drawn straight through the field. You know, every 30 inches we're dropping seed. You know, that spacing, we spend a great deal of money to make sure that spacing is equal between those plants. So they're very prolific and emerge together. So the deer height is the same. So the production from every plant is the same. You know, and for them to think about that being photosynthesis, that is solar energy. We're taking the sun and producing a protein to produce feed value. You know, the, the aha interface we overthink the story they don't need to know the nitty gritty details they want to know how much care we give into what we do and they could see it it wouldn't be that way if we didn't put that kind of care in it so what a great experience and it makes one think about how you do tell corn story i've always been a person that said you got to understand your audience whenever you message and we kind of miss a few times, but I think this was an eye-opener to an opportunity to engage a broader audience at a level for which they can appreciate. You know, John Linder, you mentioned one of the, what I would assume was a goosebumps moment for you, seeing the NCGA logo unfurled on the banner out there on the field, but we didn't yet touch on the other goosebumps moment that you had. You actually got some FaceTime with the one, the only Kevin Costner out on the field star of the field of dreams himself. Tell us about that. How did that happen? Well, that's a story a lot like Ron's. We can cut it off any point you want to, but we stopped in Dyersville, you know, which if I go back next year, which I plan on it, I need to stop and see Ron in Dyersville. But we stopped to visit with folks there and, and someone said, you know, there's a really big line out there already. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, we've got 330 batting practice that we have a couple of us get to attend. We're, th- we're sitting out on the road, not moving at three o'clock and thinking there's no way. Well, they dump us off and we don't know where we're going. So we head in from the parking lot, cross the bridge into the movie set, the field of dreams, right? Where do you go? It's all corn. 
how do you get to that stadium over there? And they said, well, just walk in the corn. I've been in a cornfield, just <laughs> choosing randomly a path is not always going to get you where you want to go. So we kind of figured it out and it was such a great experience and we're hoofing it. And we're asking anybody that might know, because we actually don't have passes. We're just on a list. And we showed them a picture of the gate we need to be. Oh, yes. We're sweating by then, Ron. I mean, it's yeah. this shirt and it's wet. We're getting around to the far side of the stadium to find someone that we don't even know who they are so we can get in for batting practice. Well, we made it. So Chris Edgington and I, first vice president, president, get out there and we're standing at the corner of the little chained off area for us to watch batting practice. Who comes by us on the left, straight up behind Kevin Costner. And you're thinking, well, we've got to see if we can engage him. He is actually a very generous individual. He is standing there, his arm crossed, and he's really not watching batting practice. He's taken in the set because he's got a performance to give. So he's got his arms crossed, just taking it in. And I'm thinking, how do you do this stuff being rude? So a couple of Mr. Costner questions, you know, and the first one, the guy next to him just got turned at me and smiled like, you're not going to get there. You might as well quit now. We asked him a question, how's it feel to be back in Iowa? Oh, he turned and he said, somehow feels like I never left. So a couple other real short engagements like that. And then he turns and he says, I suppose you gentlemen would like a photo. Well, I didn't say it, but you know what come to mind? You think? Yes, of course I do. My wife would shoot me if I didn't get that opportunity. And she really loves that photo because it's Chris and I and Kevin Costner. I hand a phone to a friend who actually had passes to, and he takes a picture and Mr. Costner's walking away and he said, it didn't take, I didn't get it. And so that's first time I called him Kevin. And I said, Kevin, would you mind coming back? We didn't get the photo. So that was the second photo. You probably see the panic in my eyes, but he's just as generous and personable in the photo the second time as he was the first. And so, yes, that's my wife's favorite photo. And she likes to take her thumbs on the screen and zoom in. And pretty soon I'm not in the photo and it looks really <laughs> great. She could kill me for saying that, but she's very generous. She she gets the humor in it as well. I've also tried to share it with folks, say, what would you pay me for the photo so you can get your face photoshopped in there? And, you know, there's some people thinking, you know, that's a calculated thing. I could buy that and I could use that. But what a great experience to engage with someone that the work he did in his movie allowed us as corn farmers in the U.S. to connect with consumers. Couldn't say yeah. thank you enough to Kevin Costner. One quick thing. I got yelled at during the game because I know when it's going to be quiet in between switching innings. So he's sitting down there with his son and I started to go, I yelled. I said, when is season four of Yellowstone? <laughs> and he looked around with his sunglasses on with no expression. And my wife took a picture of him and no answer. Then all the drunks behind me started yelling season four, season four. <laughs> but I think I, I might've heard Kevin. that moment. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, and I got to meet him earlier when Bull mm. Durham and all that stuff years ago, but having him there made the event even special. The corn was absolutely perfect. You know, the little path to get out to the other fields is phenomenal. I mean, you can't even, it's a Hollywood script writing what they did. So like I said, I'll be there next year doing something, you know, cause I, I like just doing something. So you'll probably see me out there, but bring fans. I'm telling you, because it was hot. It was a hot one out there. Mm, no doubt about it. Well, this time, 
I am going to go at least one or two, maybe three days early so that I don't have to deal with the airlines and bet as to whether or not the flight's going to get canceled. But this has been a very special podcast. And I thank both of my guests, John Linder, a corn farmer from Ohio, and he is the NCGA president. And our very special guest, former White Sox outfielder, Ron Kittle. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We very much appreciate it. I'm NCGA CEO, John Doggett, and we hope you'll join us again soon for the next episode of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association, with editing by Doug Russell and production oversight by Larry Kilgore III. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.